So I'm swinging the bat, uh, third base dugout, and all of a sudden I hear this loud blam. Welcome, everyone, to 1819 News, the podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Brian Dawson, the CEO of 1819 News and the host of the podcast, joined by Ray Mellick, the editor-in-chief of 1819 News, I'm the co-host here on the podcast. Ray, thanks for joining us. That's my job. Yeah, got to be here. <laughs> Been happy to be here and yeah, happy to absolutely. talk to Am I the only one here not paid? Yeah. Yes, that's right. So, um, well, today uh, we have a, a special guest in, as you can obviously see, as this is a video podcast, but for you audio listeners, it, it may be uh, you're on the edge of your seat wondering who it might be. But uh, we're joined by Congressman Mo Brooks. Mo, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. Glad to have you here. Before we jump into the podcast, I want to let you guys know where you can find us. 1819 News, the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, and YouTube, uh, as well as wherever else you get your podcasts. And 1819news.com, go there, sign up for the newsletter so that we make sure we get to you and you get to us because the social media overlords don't want that happening. And we have to reroute so it's direct from us to you and you to us. So with that, we'll go ahead and get started. I'm I'm the guest. Floor is all y'all. Y'all y'all control the discussion, the subjects, the whole works. All right, that sounds good. So, um, one of the things that we're wanting to do is is basically serve our audience uh, by having essentially one by one uh, candidate form of a get to know the candidates. And so um, we've had Mike Durant on so far. Uh, we're planning on having Katie on, and very gracious that you uh, decided to come join us. Um, and one of the ways that we just start off or has kind of been the pattern is um, tell us a little tell us a little bit about yourself. You're probably the most well-known, have the ma- most name ID of all the candidates. Um, so some so a lot of people are familiar with you, but no doubt there's some people that might not be. So tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, your story. Sure. Let me uh, break it into family. And then I've had two different careers, one in the private sector, one in the public sector, often overlapping. On the family side, I was uh, raised in Huntsville, Alabama, in the Tennessee Valley, uh, born in Charleston, South Carolina, but we've been here since 1962. Uh, My father was an engineer working in Redstone Arsenal. My mom was a government and economics teacher for a quarter of a century at Lee High School. Uh, She made sure that I paid attention to those things. I went to Duke University, graduated with a double major in economics and political science, kind of like my mom. Uh, graduated in three years, highest honors in economics. It's called graduation with distinction. Uh, That's the uh, phraseology that Duke University uses. While there on a blind date, met my bride-to-be, Martha Elizabeth Jenkins out of Toledo, Ohio. Uh, She's an accounting student at Duke University. And after knowing each other for about six weeks, this might blow the minds of this generation, but we decided to get married after knowing each other for about six weeks. And we've been married for 45 years. Um, her career has been as a certified public accountant, uh, by way of example, she worked on Bear Bryant's tax returns when she was with a CPA firm in Tuscaloosa, got to meet the bear, um, then became full-time mom. We had four kids. We decided collectively, uh, that it would be best if she spent her time raising the kids and me trying to generate the money, Amen. division of responsibilities. And it, it was much better that way than reversal. Cause she's turned out to be a great mom, um, after the kids all got into school, she went back to college, uh, got a math major, and began teaching math to middle schoolers in the Madison County and City of Huntsville school systems. On my track, uh, I 
was a commercial litigator most of my career in the private sector. That's the primary source of our family's income uh, during our lifetimes. What is a commercial litigator? Well, it's someone who represents generally a business in a dispute with another business. And we were blessed, uh, the law firm, uh, Carl Leo, um, was the uh, chief counsel for a company by the name of ABC Supply out of Wisconsin. You're probably familiar with them. They are America's largest distributor of roofing, siding, and windows. I think and they ABC chose... and I think liquor stores in Alabama. That's weird. <laughs> well, that wasn't it. <laughs> Not them. Okay, that's good. <laughs> and uh, they uh, decided to hire our law firm in Huntsville, Alabama, uh, predominantly because of Carl's connections. Carl had made the relationship before I had joined the firm. And my role was as chief litigation counsel for ABC Supply for almost two decades throughout the United States of America. So I might be litigating in Manhattan or Fort Lauderdale or San Diego or doing depositions in Seattle and all points in between. Um, at the same time that I had my legal hat on, I also had a public service hat on. So I was a prosecutor in the Tuscaloosa DA's office in charge of grand jury and also had the responsibility for felony jury trials. Um, was Madison County District Attorney for a brief two-year stint appointed by Governor Guy Hunt. And then I had dual roles where I was both an attorney and a public servant. As a state legislator, I was elected four times, elected four times to the Madison County Commission, and elected six times to the United States Congress. Just as a little sidebar, when I was first elected to the legislature uh, on the day of the election, the Democrats outnumbered us, Republicans, 136 to 4. And we thought we had a great wave election uh, that year. We were up to 11. It was only 129 <laughs> to 11. There you go. Got them right where you want them. <laughs> and I was the uh, first Republican elected in history in Alabama House District 18. Uh, then we had federal judges intervene. We had special elections, new districts. They tried to uh, gerrymander me out of my district. That didn't work too well. I became the first Republican in history elected in Alabama House District 10. And then going to 2010, when I was elected to the United States Congress, I was inspired to run by Barack Obama, by Harry Reid in charge of the Senate, and Nancy Pelosi, House Speaker. Yeah. And I said, we can't have this. This is bad for our country. Yeah. And so I ran for the United States Congress, uh, had a party-switching incumbent congressman by the name of Parker Griffith, and also had a veteran, retired, uh, Les Phillip, and they collectively spent about $2.5 million to 160000 and we beat them both in a Republican primary, thereby um, our team becoming uh, the first Republican elected to the United States Congress in Alabama's Tennessee Valley Congressional District in 136 years. So that's kind of, of the history. I should add that those four kids that Martha and I had, they've done great. Uh, they've got four spouses, and all four marriages are doing great. And they've given us 13 wonderful grandchildren. There you wow. go. Most recently, my daughter Chelsea had twin girls a few months ago. And my uh, oldest son, Jay, uh, he, he's the only one that lives in Birmingham. Everybody else lives in Madison County. Uh, he and his wife, Katie, who's a, a doctor at UAB, uh, they had their first daughter. So we have a lot of uh, family connections, a lot of fun with the 13 grandkids. That's awesome. Well, I learned a lot on that. I had no idea about the private sector aspects of your career. Um, well, you've been listening to Katie Britt and Mike Durant because <laughs> they too act much. like way too much. They act like I've not. Well, Mike Durant has <laughs> deceived people by saying I've never had a real job. Yeah. Okay. And I might be the one person who's earned the most money in the private sector out of all the candidates who are running for the United States Senate. Wow. 
Mike's made a lot of money too. So, well, he has <laughs> off of tax dollars. <laughs> there you go. His his private sector work was billing taxpayers. Yeah, uh, and mine was purely private sector, where I had to compete with other people who wanted the same private business that I wanted. It was not tax related. Interesting. It was not living off of any government. Yeah. I also didn't know that you had the, did you say it was a double major in economics or? And political science. Political yes. science. There you go. You learn something every day. That's why we have you come in. I bet so if you want to ask me about the causes of this high inflation that we're suffering under Joe Biden, I can give you a pretty good uh, explanation <laughs> of the contributing factors. Yeah. I, and with, with this particular one, I think they're more obvious than at other places in our past. But um, one thing I do want to jump into i'm really big on story um i worked with lee habib at our american stories before i started this outfit um and i just think the power of of story and storytelling can lend itself to to who people are at their core um and just hearing your story right there was very helpful even for me um tell us about uh, i've heard you speak a, a number of times about uh the shooting at the congressional baseball team field practice, and practice. Yeah. yeah well if you're familiar with the movie, remember the Titans, mm-hmm. which was a football team that won the Virginia national title during the days of integration, uh, the Republican baseball team, we practice at their field, uh, yeah. their baseball field in Alexandria. Now, if you know anything about Republicans and Democrats, you know that we don't like to lose to each other in anything, anything. And so we have a congressional baseball game, uh, once a year, it's held in the Washington nationals baseball stadium. It generates over a million dollars on average various charities in the Washington, D.C. area, like Boys and Girls Club, reading things, charitable type things that you would expect. And we practice a long time for that one game. By way of example, in a couple of weeks, our practices begin, I think it's around uh, March the 8th, for a game in July. (laughs) That's a lot of practice when you've got another job. And our practices, they can't interfere with our duties as congressmen and senators, so we have to we have to get up real early, and our practices typically you you better be at the ball field about five fifty a.m. Eastern time, which is four fifty a.m. Central time. So it's quite the uh, adjustment uh, to get up early and go to practice every day that you're in Washington D.C. Well, back then the uh, practice field was about eight or nine miles from the Capitol, and so I would get up and rather than go in a car, I'd ride my bike. That way, I'd get warmed up and be good exercise uh, bicycling along the Potomac and pass. Uh, Reagan National uh, Airport, get to the ball field, uh, throw a little bit, jog a little bit, uh, get ready uh, for the practice. The first thing the practice would do is infield and then outfield, and I was an outfielder. Um, By way of background, at Grissom High School, I was all city as an outfielder. Really good glove for two years, zero errors as an outfielder. Pretty good arm, pretty good speed. I just wish I could have hit. Yeah. <laughs> if I could have hit, I might could have gone past high school ball. But unfortunately, uh, the hitting was nowhere good enough to be able to play any kind of collegiate ball, much less the uh, any child's dream of playing uh, in the majors. Yep. So we had our infield practice. We had our outfield practice. Um, normally, when the batting practice occurs, since I'm not a very good hitter, and we, we have three teams in our one team in the game. We have a running team base runners, we have a hitting team, and a defensive team. And so I'm one of the defensive stalwarts, not so much on the hitting side and not so much on the running side. And we have a lot of players, too, so congressmen and senators, so we try to give everybody a role so that they can participate and play. So that's one of the reasons why we divvy it up that way. 
So I'm in left field, and normally I shag fly balls uh, during batting practice uh, and line drives just to make sure that my judgment's good. If you played baseball, you know how important it is to know where the ball is going within a fraction of a second after it leaves the bat. And you learn that through repetition. Uh, But for whatever reason, on this particular day, and it was probably the only time uh, that year that I did this, something just prompted me to go bat early. And so I went in, I got my uh, two bats, and I'm standing at the in front of the third base dugout mm-hmm. in the on-deck circle with two bats, swinging the two bats to warm up. Uh, we've got a gentleman from Florence who's a staffer who's on the mound pitching. He used to uh, play football uh, both in the NFL uh, and for University of North Alabama Lions. And we've got uh, Rodney Davis, if I recall correctly. He's, he's at bat, and he, we've got a batting cage. That's a little screen that goes over home plate so that foul balls don't leave the park and you have to run them down. And the bottom of the batting cage has a plastic about two feet high that you can't see through. That's to help the fielder see. And I mentioned that for a reason in just a moment that you'll understand. So I'm swinging the bat, uh, third base dugout, and all of a sudden I hear this loud, blam! And, you know, I thought it was a car backfire or something, or, heck, I'm in the Washington, D.C. area. Maybe it's some stray shooter shooting something. Um, that, unfortunately, is... Uh, not that unusual in Washington, D.C., yeah. given the violence that goes on there on a regular basis. And I'm not, that doesn't really affect me much. I don't turn around because I hear the noise. It's, it's to my back uh, along the left field line just past the third base dugout. Keep in mind, I'm in front of the third base dugout. But then all bedlam breaks loose within a fraction of a second. People start screaming, shooter. And that prompts me to turn around. And I turn around and I see the shooter. Um, at first he was hidden by the cinder block dugout, but you, I saw him approaching the chain link fence that separates the stands from the field. And he, uh, puts the rifle barrel through the chain link fence. And then of course he's coming right behind, uh, the rifle barrel and I get a really good look at him and we're probably about 20, 25, 30 feet away, which is pretty doggone close when someone's got a rifle in their hands Yeah, and I was stationary and the people who were in the infield, they're all scattering. The people are in the outfield. They're all scattering. Uh, there's a lot of screaming and it occurs to me that I'm the closest to him. Uh, all this is happening in a fraction of a second, maybe a second or two at most. And if he turns and looks 45 degrees to the right, he's got an easy straight shot at me. And so upon that realization, I've got two bats in my hands. I can't do anything about it because he's on the other side of a chain link fence with a rifle. And so I drop the bats and I run around the batting cage and dive face first into the dirt there because at least he couldn't see me because of that opaque plastic that is at the bottom of the uh, batting cage. And there are about three or four other congressmen or senators who are there too, and we're all eating dirt face down. And the shooter uh, is firing rapidly. And I should add that as I'm running to go around the batting cage, I look towards second base and and infield uh, to see my colleagues uh, sprinting in different directions. And I see Steve Scalise get hit, and I hear him scream. And that's pretty much the last thing I see or hear until I'm face down uh, in the uh, dirt around home plate on the other side of the batting cage. 
and the firing goes on for some period of time. I don't know how long, but either someone says something or it just kind of simultaneously occurs to us. If this shooter walks around the third base dugout, we're lying on the ground. We'd only be 10 or 15 feet away from him. and We're sitting ducks. Uh, he'd be on the other side of the chain link fence, but that would be it. So we'd have no defense, nowhere to go, nothing to do to protect ourselves. So spontaneously, um, we one by one decide to run towards the first base dugout, which is the bottom of the dugouts, maybe a foot and a half, uh, two feet at most, uh, below ground level. So you have a little bit of cover because you're in a recessed area. And so I'm last uh, to make that sprint, uh, which is about 15, 20 yards, whatever the distance is, uh, to that dugout. Um, and all the while, the bullets are flying. Uh, we don't know who he's shooting at. We're not looking at him. We're looking at the dugout, and we just go face first and do a, uh, a, a dive into the dugout on top of other people who are lying on the bottom. Uh, fortunately, no one was hurt uh, during uh, that incident. Um, uh, I know that the only open gate is just past the first base dugout, so I crawl over everybody else and get to the steps that would take you out towards that gate should this guy get into the ball field. And I'm trying to figure out how best to uh, minimize my risk and how to react depending on what different circumstances might occur. And as I'm thinking about all that, and I'm on my back kind of looking up, uh, I see this kid, uh, it's the coach's son, uh, Joe Barton's son, who's standing on the right field side of the dugout at the steps. And he's just standing there like he's frozen. And I start screaming at him because there are bullets all over the place. And I say, you get in here. And, of course, I think in retrospect he was kind of frozen because he probably doesn't want to get into the dugout and step on all those adults. Hmm. You know, uh, he's a kid. And finally uh, it sinks into him with my screaming at him. We're about probably four feet away. Uh, from each other, five feet, that he better get in that dugout now. And so fortunately, he got down and he got low, so he wasn't hit. Um, then, you know, we still hear the bullets and we hear the the ricochets and things of that nature. Um, uh, I don't know how much time passes, but all of a sudden, uh, one of our staffers by the name of Zach Barth dives in over me. And he lands on top of uh, me and... Uh, Senator Jeff Flake from Arizona, and we've got Roger Williams from Texas, a congressman who's our current day coach, and he's kind of sprawled over the three of us, and I go, hey, dude, you've been shot. you got a hole in your leg. And he's saying, I'm okay, I'm okay. And I say, no, you're not okay. you got a hole in your leg. And so I take off my uh, belt, and um, I don't remember how the tourniquet gets applied. I think what happened, if I reconstruct it properly, you know, some things you remember really, really well, crystal clear. Other things, not so much because your brain's trying to focus on so many different things at once. But the belt that I took off was used as a tourniquet on his leg to try to uh, reduce the uh, loss of blood. And so then you have some period of time and I'm, I'm face down now trying to minimize the exposure risk uh, in the dugout. And, then all of a sudden you hear this, blam! I mean, really loud. And I'm going, oh my goodness, there's a second shooter because it's coming from a different direction. And so now I'm trying to figure out what should I do to minimize the risk uh, with that second shooter. And that gun was fired probably about four feet from my head, and it was by a Capitol Police officer. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I rolled over and saw who it was, and I'm going, Whew. 
you know, this is a good, this is a good thing. The good guys are here. And so the Capitol police officer is firing his handgun across the infield at, uh, the assassin who's still outside the gate, uh, just past the third base dugout. And this goes on for about seven, seven and a half minutes. Um, I don't remember the exact number, but it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 160 to 170 bullets were fired. Uh, they deduce that from bullet casings and whatever the FBI does when they reconstruct these things. Yeah. Um, ultimately, you know, we're all lying down. The Capitol police are telling us to stay down, not to get out. Some of our people had already run through that open gate along the first baseline and had hidden behind trees or what have you. Um, and, and we know Steve Scalise has been hit. Uh, Zach Barth is lying right next to me. He's got a hole in his leg. Uh, we, we figured that other people have probably been hit, but we, we can't see or hear who they are. Um, then, uh, finally we hear shooter down, shooter down. And the shooter had walked around the third base dugout. So it was pretty lucky or smart that we weren't lying on the ground behind home plate. And he got hit, uh, behind home plate and between home plate and the bleachers, uh, by Alexandria, uh, police and perhaps also by Capitol police. And he was killed uh, at the scene. As soon as we heard the shooter down um, cry, um, two or three of us immediately ran out to Steve Scalise. Um, I was on their heels. I was not the first one or two, but I was on their heels. Got to Steve. Steve was now in, he had been playing at second base. He was now in the short uh, right field grass. And he had crawled, pulled himself. Uh, and you could see the blood marks every two feet for about 15 or 20 yards. As he, he couldn't move his legs, so he's pulling himself with his arms. Um, I tended to his wound, um, not because I have any medical expertise, but because Brad Winstrup, who happened to be a combat surgeon from Ohio who's also in Congress, gave me instructions to apply pressure to the entry wound on his hip. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't have touched it because I'd have felt like, hey, I'm going to do more damage than good. Yeah. Um, and Brad Winstrup uh, tended to uh, Steve Scalise until uh, the medics arrived. And about that time, uh, the Capitol Police officer who was shooting right above my head, he comes over. He's wounded. He's limping. But his, his, the only reason he's there is because Steve Scalise is there. Mm -hmm. Steve Scalise hadn't been there or left early. We hadn't had any Capitol Police. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. And he's he's concerned about Steve Scalise because that was his primary responsibility. And this guy, I mean, he was so brave. I mean, you, you know, you're shooting 30, 40 yards away across an infield. Someone's got a rifle and you've got a handgun. That's not really a fair fight. But he had been wounded with what we believe is a ricochet uh, in his ankle. Another police officer had been hit in the ankle, and she had serious injuries. And then we had another uh, gentleman by the name of Micah. He's one of the sponsors of the congressional baseball team. And he had taken some number of hits. Um, and one of the bullets was lodged right next to his heart. And he, he and Steve Scalise are the two wow. who came closest to dying. Uh, fast forward to the end game. Uh, a couple days later, uh, we're called into a meeting with the FBI. Uh, six of us are. And it's explained to us that the assassin had what I would call a hit list in his pocket where he's got the names of six different congressmen, their office numbers, their physical description, uh, and I was one of those six. And all six of those were conservatives. So he, he was a socialist assassin. He was a Bernie Sanders supporter. 
And he had decided to uh, take matters into his own hands and try to take out some of our uh, conservative leaders in the United States Congress based on that six-person hit list. Wow. And I think, uh, if I remember correctly, too, he had even asked on his way over, Mm -hmm. is that the Republicans or Democrats? So people that were saying, oh, he was just randomly. No, he was specifically, he had even asked to make sure that was the Republican. Congressman Jeff Duncan from South Carolina, an avid Clemson fan, uh, played a little bit on the Clemson football team. Uh, He left a little bit early, and the guy went up to uh, Jeff Duncan along with another congressman that was with Jeff and confirmed that it was the Republican baseball team. Right. Uh, before he went back to his vehicle and pulled out his armaments. Yeah. Wow. Mo, how does, uh, and I've, I, I was actually up there that day uh, at that time working for Congressman Gary Palmer, but I, he said, Hey, do you want to go to practice? I went, it's too early. I'm not going to get up that early. And then, you know, uh, yeah, Gary's one of the ones who got injured, uh, not by the bullets, but right. by the scramble. Yeah. The scramble yourself. But I've always I have asked him, I wanted to ask you, uh, how does that change you though? When you've been in that situation, something you never expected Nobody ever expects to be at a place where they're being shot at, no matter what you do. It's got to affect you, and what 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 change did that occur in you? It does make you undertake more precautions than you otherwise would have. Um, and certainly, you're more cognizant of the people around you in some of these public events. Uh, the stridency of the socialists in America. I mean, socialism is on the march, and to their credit, these people who prefer socialism over liberty and freedom and free enterprise, they're dedicated to their task. And if you look at history, you look at what happened in communist China, you look at what happened in Russia, Soviet Union, uh, you look at what happened in uh, Germany with the National Socialist German Workers' Party, uh, commonly known as the Nazis with Adolf Hitler. Um, they were so dedicated to their belief in socialism that they exterminated literally in each of those countries millions of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it you know, this is a threat, uh, this socialist movement in the United States of America. And I think what you saw was this one instance where a socialist carried it to the extreme in America, but which was commonplace when socialism took over uh, these other nations. Well, were you as, uh, I'm sorry, Brum, but did that sort of cement that for you? I mean, before you were aware of it, but then you actually experienced it. Did that change your sort of heightened awareness of what the threat really well yeah i've been advised uh to take the death threats and other threats of violence that we congressmen get on a regular basis i've been advised to take it more seriously and of course mm-hmm. once you've been shot at you take it pretty seriously <laughs> yeah. 160 170 bullets fired over a six or seven minute period of time uh, <laughs> that's a pretty good wake-up call yeah uh you know to take it serious at that point so i have uh, bulletproof vests in huntsville and in washington uh, we have uh, other security measures that are, uh, have been undertaken. Uh, we have uh, greater security at our house now than we ever had before. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that's becoming, uh, those security measures are becoming quite common amongst a lot of congressmen and senators because of the death threats we get um, on the conservative side. We get them from the socialists on a regular uh, basis. And on the socialist side, apparently they also get them from uh, conservatives. Um, I don't know how frequently, but they claim they get it uh, uh, regularly. One of the most impressive things I think from that is the resolve of of you, Steve Scalise, people like that, after being shot, uh, shot and shot at, um, that would make a lot of people like question what it was that they were doing for a living, right? They would um, maybe rethink their career choices, maybe get a little bit quieter, uh, maybe not boast conservative values quite so loudly. 
um, you know, that was obviously the intent of the shooter is to, to, well, to apparently it didn't back. work on me. Right. Well, that's <laughs> yeah. where I was. There are some people who have retired and I'm not going to mention their names, Yeah, but there are some people who have retired in part because of what happened with respect to the ball field. Um, they might've been there at the time. I'm not going to try to, I'm going to try yeah, to no. avoid getting any information. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Everybody responds differently. Than yeah. They, yeah. And then just the drumbeat of threats that we get on a regular basis. Yeah. And instead of backing out, you're running for United States Senate. Uh, that is correct. Our country's go. worth it. That was the point that I was trying to drive home. Well, um, pretty amazing story. I'm a story guy. Ray knows that. And so I always like to get, get some stories going to, to get the content rolling before we get into questions. Um, I think I'll lead with just the, the real simple um, question of, you know, um, we have three people running. Um, I well, know, actually, it's six. Well, six. There's three. <laughs> thank you for correcting yeah. me on that. There's three people who look like they might have a chance at winning. So there's six people running. Um, of those those three main people that have a, uh, look to have a real legitimate chance at winning is, is you, Katie Britt, uh, Mike Durant. Um, you know, I one thing that I've learned as I've gotten into politics is there's there's a lot of mud thrown, there's a lot of bombs dropped, there's a lot of all this kind of stuff. Um, at the end of the day, I don't think anybody's quite the uh, monster they're being made out to be. Um, but at the same time, there's, um, you know, you guys obviously believe that you're better than the other person. I want to ask you what makes you different than the other two and why should people vote for you? Well, we should have gotten past all the stories and the history in order to leave more time for the contrast between myself and some of the other folks running. Uh, in a nutshell, out of the six candidates, as far as I'm aware, I'm the only one who's ever held elected office. I'm the only one that's ever had to actually cast a vote on a controversial issue where you've got the heat on from both sides. You've got the wily ways and persuasive arguments of both sides. You've got the money dangling in front of you to try to get you to do the wrong thing for special interest groups. And I'm the only one with a track record that you can look at that establishes that I'm going to do what I believe is in the best interest of my country. Um, and that's it. You special interest groups, I, I'm okay with hearing from you. But if you're trying to get something that is just going to favor you to the detriment of our country, mm. I'm sorry, but I am not going to play that game. And you can talk all you want. You can offer all the money you want, but it isn't going to change my mind. Um, so, I'm the one with the experience. I'm the one with the track record. And I'll use as an example to all the listeners out there. How many times have you heard candidates say what you want to hear? And then you vote for them. Then they get elected and you're scratching your head because they aren't doing what they said they would do. It's a common theme in D.C. There There is no requirement that these candidates for public office be honest in the promises that they make. Mm. Okay. And so with me, if you want a conservative, you can verify that I'm your guy. Um, if you want a liberal, you can also verify that I'm not your guy. Yeah. You better vote for one of the other candidates. Or if you have a special interest and you want to take advantage of the American people through the power of that special interest, I'm not your guy. But yeah. there are candidates out there who are your guy that you can vote for. Um, so that's a, that's a huge difference. Another difference is, and this one's real simple, I'm the one that's been endorsed by President Trump, and I'm also the one that's been endorsed by Donald Trump Jr. So I've got two Trump endorsements, and the other five candidates have zero Trump endorsements. Now, that the other side spent five or six months, uh, particularly the Katie Britt campaign, and they're pretty smart in the way in which they plant these stories with the media. Give them credit. They have some skilled uh, political operatives that are assisting her. 
Uh, but they've been planting this rumor mill stuff about how I'm not Donald Trump's guy in this race. And that's absurd. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, people would say, well, how come he hasn't done more lately? Gosh, we've got a radio ad that's his voice. We've got a TV ad where he's extolling the virtues of Mo Brooks. I am the MAGA candidate. Okay. So that's another big difference between myself and the others. And then to reinforce it, Donald Trump is raised, Donald Trump Jr. is raising money for us. Yeah. And he gave a really strong statement uh, recently about his support for me and uh, his father's support for me and called me one of Donald Trump's seniors, President Trump's greatest allies um, in the United States Congress. And so that's another uh, contrasting point. I would add, and this would be one that we can debate, as I'm also the only conservative amongst the top three. And I can uh, draw the contrast, but that's probably where we need more time to get into the details. But I'm happy to spend time on that if you wish. (laughs) So real quick, I want to say this, um, and I've been hoping to be able to sit down and say this. And I think one of the, what are you polling at now, 36%-ish, somewhere in there? There have been three polls uh, that were not done by one of the campaigns uh, that have come out in the last two, two and a half weeks. Um, Take your pick. Um, 39%, 35 percent, 33% uh, for Mo Brooks. Uh, each of those had us in first place. And with Mike Duran, if I recall the numbers correctly, he was at 30 percent, 25 percent, and 24 percent in each instance in second place. And then Katie Britt was trailing in third place somewhere in the neighborhood of 24, 23, and 21. Now those are three uh, polls that did not come from my campaign, Katie Britt's campaign, or Mike Durant's campaign. But I want to emphasize something about those polls. You know, they're snapshots in a moment in time. The methodology often determines the outcome. And, um, you know, they're, they're entertaining. But what, the, only, the only one that counts is May 24th. That's now, right. I say that while they, those polls say I'm in first. I'll say them if I dropped a second or third in those polls. Yeah. The only thing that counts is May 24th. That's right. So everybody hears mm-hmm. my voice. Take all those polls with a large grain of salt. So, and I guess the reason I'm bringing that up is, is I say this, and one thing that made me really happy about what you just did when, when I asked what made you different is that you didn't lead with the Donald Trump thing. Because um, I think one of the things that, that is, it seems like has happened since kind of the, the beginning of your campaign, I think a Trump endorsement is obviously worth its weight in gold, and you have that, and I think it's admirable. Gold and platinum. Gold and platinum, <laughs> right? Maybe but it, diamonds, But too. at the same time, I think, um, I think to some degree you do yourself a disservice by not shining the light on the attributes about you that are extremely positive about your background, your stories, all of these other things, and leaning so hard on Donald Trump. And, and like you look at Roy Moore, you look at Luther Strange, um, and then you look at, and you were there, you look at what happened in Coleman where the people of Alabama don't just do what Donald Trump says. He sat up there and he talked about Joe Biden and inflation. Everybody cheered. He talked about pulling out of Afghanistan and how terrible it was. Everybody cheered. And then he's like, oh, and then the vaccines and it went dead quiet. Right. And no, so, there were, there were booze. Yeah. There was, I also there got booze. some booze too. That might be a yes, future TV yes, ad. We'll see but, how that one plays out. But point when, I, being, when I try to get people to focus on the 2022 and 2024 elections, which yeah. we have to win folks. Yes. We have to win them. I, and I guess the point I'm trying to drive home is the people of Alabama, despite the stereotype that is all they do is whatever Donald Trump says, right? That's what the radical left thinks. That's the picture they try and paint is a bunch of toothless rednecks that can only do what Lord Trump says. Um, we saw in that instance in Coleman where they basically cheered what was good. And then they said, no, you know, this far and no further where it was bad. And so I, I like, okay, I said, let me be real clear. I am not asking people to vote for me because some person has endorsed me. We've had lots of people endorse me. Yeah. What I'm asking people to do 
is look at why these people, why these organizations that are conservative have endorsed me, because that helps confirm that if you're a conservative, that Mo Brooks is the only conservative in this race. And here's why. If you believe in the MAGA agenda, Make America Great Again agenda, I am your candidate as evidenced by Donald Trump's endorsement. He would not endorse somebody who is not a believer in the MAGA agenda. And so that's what is important is the reason why President Trump has endorsed Mo Brooks over all other candidates. And I think as I've talked talked to a group this week, I said the one thing that I mentioned is policy. You've got the policy record. I mean, you have to believe the other two candidates, the major candidates, will do what you want. But you actually, as you said— Well, I'm going to disagree with that, but go ahead. Well, no, I'm just going to say— And I can give a pretty good example. Okay, well, but but they've not— They've not engaged in actual arena as you have. And I can look at your history and at least say, okay, here is where Mo Brooks has stood. And you're not exactly shy either of telling people what you think about things. If you like border security, go to Numbers USA, which is an organization that evaluates our border security record. And I've been number one every single year that I've been in the United States Congress, according to their evaluation system out of 435. If you want someone who's truly pro-life, then look at National Right to Life, who has graded Mo Brooks an A every single year. I've been in the United States Congress. If Second Amendment right to bear arms is important, we'll look at Gun Owners of America and National Rifle Association, how they evaluate Mm -hmm. congressmen. And I've had an A grade every year that I've been in the United States Congress with them. So that is one of the big defining differences between myself and others. Now, And I'll tell you what goes on in campaigns, and y'all know this. When you have these high-profile races that involve a lot of money, and this Senate race is going to be involving tens of millions of dollars, oh, yeah. what happens? The candidates immediately hire themselves a consulting group, and that consulting group either hires or includes a pollster. The pollster then runs a poll to figure out what the public wants to hear. The pollster then tells the consultant, hey, this is what our candidate needs to say to win because this is what the polling data says about what the public wants to hear. And then the, those collectively get with the candidate and say, this is what you've got to say if you want to win. There is no requirement that the candidate believes it. And those candidates (laughs) who really covet these elected positions, they take the advice and counsel of the people they're paying a lot of money to, and they parrot to the public what the public wants to hear. And the one difference between me and all these other candidates is I haven't run that kind of poll to find out what the public wants to hear. This is what Mo Brooks believes And you can confirm that it's what I believe because I've got a track record with those votes that you were just referring to that nobody else has. Now, keep in mind, this is the second most important position in the United States of America, the United States Senate. Arguably, president is most important, although you talk to some senators, they'll say, oh, no, we're more important. (laughs) I think the president's vote is more important than the Senate vote, but there's some disagreement amongst those hundred egos in the United States Senate. Um, this is serious stuff, and our country faces a lot of challenges. And I offer myself as a candidate because I believe in the foundational principles that have combined to make America the greatest nation in world history, and I'm not going to surrender on those. I'm not going to compromise on those. And so that's where I come from, and it gets a lot of people mad when I don't give up our First Amendment right to freedom of speech a little bit at a time because there are other little trinkets and baubles that are out there trying to encourage me to give up those things. I'm not going to give up our Second Amendment right to bear arms. I'm not going to give up on having honest and accurate elections. I'm not going to give up on our moral values. And I don't budge one inch when the Democrats and the rhinos, particularly the debt junkie rhinos with the lure of all that money, that when they try to get you to do things you know are wrong for your country, and when I talk about debt junkie rhinos, let me emphasize, y'all have probably heard that we have a $30 trillion debt, okay? 
And you're seeing it come home to roost because that is one of the three major contributing factors to our inflation at seven and a half percent that is eroding the lifestyles of Americans. It's undermining the purchasing power of what you have earned over the course of a year. Rain, before we go, we got about four minutes. You want to ask your question? Well, no, I, I, I want to get really to the economic part. You are an economist, and you understand where we are. The short version, I know there's no real short answer, but what in, in a year's time we've seen this economy do, the inflation, the, 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 uh, the gridlock that's going on, the debt keeps increasing. How do we fix that? Where do we go uh, in your mind, what's the what's the next step? Well, there are three big problems with our economy, um, excuse causes of the problem with our economy right now. And the biggest problem is the inflation rate. Mm-hmm. And those three big causes of that bad inflation rate are, number one, these huge deficits that we have racked up, $3 trillion, then $3 trillion, who knows how many trillions it will be this year. We're still in the midst of uh, this fiscal year. But that contributes to inflation. Then you've got the Biden administration's attack on energy. Energy is important to everything in an economy. I mean, to transport goods, you got to have energy. you got to have diesel fuel or whatever it is that you're using to transport those goods. So uh, the Biden administration has attacked our energy industry in the United States of America with the killing of the Keystone Pipeline, with the attack on fracking that generated a lot of oil. That generation of oil, in turn, increases the supply, which helps to force down the price Okay, and then you've got the imagery of it all that causes people to get skittish so that the price of oil has just about skyrocketed in the one year that Joe Biden has been president of the United States. So that has increased um, the inflation rate. And then you've got this really economically stupid, counterproductive program of paying people not to work. (laughs) And when you pay people not to work, that in turn drives up the cost to produce goods and services in the United States of America. And so that's another big contributing factor this to this 7.5% inflation rate. And if we don't start addressing at least one of those three problems, and right now we're not addressing any of the three, then you can anticipate this inflation is just going to go on and on and on. And heaven help us if we get to the point where, say, Venezuela does, where the respect for their currency dropped to such bad levels that they had inflation rates that were over 1,000% yeah. per year. That kills your economy. And in uh, Venezuela, there was a one a year, 15-month period of time, whatever it was, where the average Venezuelan lost over 10 pounds because they could not get food to sustain their body weights. Uh, That's the kind of adverse consequences you have when you have idiots, economic idiots, in Congress doing what they're doing, and it's compounded when you replace someone who's got a lot of economic sense like Donald Trump with Joe Biden, who's totally lost when it comes to economic realities. Wow. We could go on and on. It'd be fascinating. I know you've got other appointments and we've got to wrap as, this thing as up does as does the well. congressman. Yeah. Well, so, that's, yeah. Um, well, yeah, no, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I think this was really good. I know I got a lot out of it. And I think if Ray and I got a lot of it, we hope our audience did as well. Thank you for coming on. I know you got a packed schedule. Uh, with having to deal with things in D.C. and come back and campaign. So we're very grateful that you joined us. My pleasure. All right, guys, that, that'll wrap it up for today's episode. Again, go to 1819news.com. Subscribe there for the newsletter uh, and Spotify, iTunes, and YouTube is where you can find us. Until next time.